So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Wilson Poon. I'm a professor of physics in this university. I also contribute to the teaching of a master's course on science and religion in the School of Divinity. So I have to make a public confession with both of my hats on as a physicist, but also in my work on science and religion, I'm actually a great admirer of Professor Latour's books and his articles. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome him back to deliver the second of his Gifford lectures. But just before I give him the platform, I should point out that this lecture is being recorded and videoed, um, and so the video will be online on the Gifford website uh, shortly. The lecture is also being streamed live around the globe as we speak. But now, without further ado, I will hand the platform over to Professor Latour to deliver his second Gifford lecture, A Question of Agency. Thank you very much for the rare confession. <laughs> I don't have that many friends in, among physicists. Tonight, we are once again assembled in the hope of defining the condition with which we could face uh, Gaia. Gaia as a wholly secular arrangement of secular agencies without being petrified by Gorgon's place. The following quote is from part five of Hume's justly famous dialogue concerning natural religion, when Philo, carried along by a skeptical argument that no knowledge whatsoever of the ultimate cause could be attained, to the great scandal, if you remember, of Demea, rambles about the many equally plausible and equally meaningless scenario for the origin of the world. In a word, Cleantes, a man who follows your hypothesis, is able, perhaps, to assert or conjecture that the universe sometimes rose from something like design. But beyond that position, he cannot ascertain one single circumstance and is left afterwards to fix every point of his theology by the utmost license of fancy and hypothesis. It's the work only of some dependent inferior deity and is the object of derision to his superiors. It's the production of old age and dotage in some superannuated deity, and ever since his death has run on at adventures from the first impulse and active force which we'd receive from him. You justly give signs of horror, Demetria, at this trans supposition that these and a thousand more of the same kind can be invented. How I wish I had David's Hume wit and Philo's devastating irony. How I wish the graceful English had been my mother tongue. Had I had the slightest chance of borrowing a fraction of her golden style, I would not have remained stupidly idle like poor Pamphilus, the mere auditor of a conversation that was supposed to educate him in the solid foundation of natural religion. What a fraud in such a claim. Someone should have warned his father not to let him under Cleon's supervision. Nothing more corrupting could have touched this young and tender soul. As a young boy, I would have been so scandalized by the obsessive search of those three grown-ups for a foundation of religion in the sole and unique question of design, that in spite of my foreign upbringing, I would have surely interjected. Forgive me, Cleantes, and you too, Philo, and you, respectable Demir. But why is it that at no time in your long discussion have you mentioned anything 
having to do with religion, with what really counts for us in religion. I know what you are going to say, my respected teachers, but today you are not talking about what comes from the heart, not what is taught by our most holy church about the unfathomable mysteries of our religion, but only of what is accessible by unaided reason through the mere scientific knowledge we have of the natural world. But here again, I feel ashamed to have to disagree with such eminent masters. In my view, admittedly weak and still amorphous, you have done nothing more but pit one blind designer, a sort of blind watchmaker, against another designer who has no other property than being non-visually challenged. But what's the gain in terms of religion? And if I dare so, what's the gain in terms of natural philosophy? At no point did you raise any other question but that of deciding upon the ultimate cause out of which or out of whom we are all born. A what against a who? Is this the only question to be raised? Is there a genuine difference between the two or only a purely verbal one? But even more troubling, you establish a foundation for natural philosophy and for religion and then base that foundation purely on knowledge. You, the great philosophers of the Scottish Enlightenment, the source of so much pride for all of us, you for Edinburgh, you assert an already unified universe, a universe so unified that through your leap of faith that the only remaining task is finding a name for the ultimate cause of this vast, coherent whole. From which comfortable, distant, outside theater seats have you witnessed the spectacle of this already completed universe? If your gaze is so vast that you can already embrace this whole, then declaring where it comes from must also almost be an afterthought. Perhaps you will take me from some Jacobite just descended from his wild highlands, but these things are, three things are amiss in your vast edifice. Your premature unification of the world, what you expect from religion, and what you attribute to natural philosophy. The story doesn't tell us whether the discussion broke down at this point. Maybe poor Pamphilus was severely reprimanded for his adolescent rambling and sent back to his room with nothing but water, bread, and a Bible. My own suspicion is that at least one of the protagonists, Philo, of course, would have been sufficiently troubled by the young chap's burst of indignation to explore those three questions a bit further. There is no question that Philo, who is, even though there is a dispute about that, Hume's barely-veiled mouthpiece, hold the view that the very idea of natural religion is a pleonasm. As we saw in the previous lecture, there is no way to speak of design and not to bring in some sort of entity for a very specific type of people who define it by the full attribute of exteriority, unity, animation, and universality. And once this is decided, the only remaining question is to decide whether the job of ultimate cause is better carried out by one all-seeing watchmaker, a providence, or a blind watchmaker, for instance, evolution. The third remaining solution being to decide, as Philo does, that the task is totally fruitless. 
As Pamphilus could have said, had he learned in his semiotics, the distinction between a what and a who is a question of figuration, two different names of actor given to the same agency. An actant is an actant, and a watchmaker remains a watchmaker, blind or not. <coughs> Philo knows this game better than anybody else, since he has proposed in the dialogue a bewildering numbers of substitutes for the same role, architect, giant spider, superannuated deity, monsters, devils, and even a big vegetable. But what Philo will not have realized without Pamphilus' scandalized intersection is that a totally different conclusion than skepticism could be drawn from so entertaining a strategy. The whole dialogue, Philo to acquiesce, implies a placing of a problem that is satisfactory neither for him nor for Cleantes. As to Demea, as you know, is so disgusted by the whole conversation that he leaves before the end of the dialogue. The reason is that the dialogue starts with the free arbitrary supposition that there is a universe already unified enough to be in need of an overall explanation, that the only way to raise the question is through the single requirement of knowledge, aided or unaided by scriptures, and that the religion dear to the heart of Pamphilus, Cleantes, and even Demer will be abetted or destroyed only once a new and stable piece of information regarding the ultimate cause of the universe will have been secured. Let me present Philo's three new arguments by using the same tool I used yesterday, that is the translation table that allows our attention to shift from the label given to the entity, their name, so to speak, to their attributes. It is certainly the case that useless wars could be avoided when resorting to the ambiguous, ambiguous name of religion. Pomphilus is right to say that what he identifies by that name has no attribute in common with what Philo is attacking so devastedly and that Cleantes is defending so clumsily. The front lines are completely messed up. First, the people summoned by religion, so now I'm going to go for the last column on the right. First, the people summoned by religion too, this is the bottom there, are clearly and unequivocally defined as members of a church. That is a highly specific grouping with clear boundaries marked by specific ritual and sacrament. Remember that political theology is about theos, nemos, and demos. You may have noticed that in the free assemblage we reviewed in the previous lecture, the exact shape of the people remained very fuzzily drawn. It might not even be clear to a naturalist that he or she is part of a specific people, summoned by a specific entity. They were alternatively everybody, we are all born, remember, comprising all reasonable humans, or, depending on the controversy, limited to a highly specified assembly of scientists, natural philosophers, and members of the public. It seems that naturalists are supposed to be at once completely interchangeable, bodiless minds, and also highly skilled and specialized experts. Such a confusion does not help in the exact definition of a folk. As to the people summoned by natural religion, it was not clear if we had to deal with any particular historical church 
or with humanity as a whole on its way to conversion. By contrast, for Pamphilus, it's a clearly and concrete and well-delineated congregation who share the same faith, vocations, and ritual. Second, it's hard to reconcile what I would call now religion one and two when one considers that the key features of a narrative offered by the Christian tradition totally subvert the very distinction between the people and the entity it summons. In such a narrative, the very distinction between what is outside and what is inside is being totally transformed, since the God incarnate is at once radically outside and radically inside. Because God, according to his creed, has chosen to share human destiny, the people he assembles are called to become, in turn, like God. It's difficult to imagine mixing any more thoroughly the paired key notion of exteriority and interiority, of ups and downs, of heaven and earth. And I'll come back, of course, to this feature later when comparing with the people assembled under the paradoxical figure of Gaia. At any rate, the word incarnation is just as hard to reconcile with religion one as with the two other definitions of nature. Third, the entity around which the church assembles bears no relation to the others since it shares none of its characters of unity, universality, undisputability, and immutability. On the contrary, it's best characterized, as far as we can tell, by a chain of successive and radical metamorphosis, mutation, and conversion, reprise in the very definition of what is an entity called God. Even when this chain is artificially segmented in successive events, God, Son, Holy Spirit, Church, none of them may be defined as a stable substance. The label Trinity does not help much at this point, except that it underlines how far it is from an already unified God implied by religion one. Most importantly, grasping each of its sequence requires a highly specific movement of appropriation and retelling so that the whole narrative of incarnation can be carried one step forward in time and space in a new, refreshing way. While religion, too, is defined by a succession of events, taking up one after the other, religion, one, strives to define a distant and stable object. And it has no other way to define it except by choosing words that have to be as independent as possible from the distant target. By contrast, in religion, too, the realization of the event in all of the meaning of the word realization depends on the logos, that is, on how to retell the narrative, how to address, and more exactly, to convert the faithful, how to spread the good news of the gospel. Here again, the discrepancy between the two meanings of religion are baffling. The thing told and the word telling it are one and the same. That is, the word, with a capital W, this word that stands at the beginning of John's scripture. Fourth, what is even more disturbing, and what explains Pamphilus' indignant retort, is that the very way of taking up those questions 
cannot possibly be grasped in the quite cool way in which natural religion seems to be complacently debated in this dialogue. This is where lies the most disturbing difference between religion too and all the other column. The talk is not about carrying information to know if there is a deity, a spider, or a big vegetable at the origin of it all, but about transforming, converting, resuscitating those who are talked to. And yet at no point in this celebrated dialogue does you make the smallest effort to even begin or understand this gapping difference that has nonetheless occupied the best mind in Christianity for about 1,800 years. What is it to speak? Not about religion, but religiously. That is, to welcome, to generate, and to encounter again the beings proper to religion by the very way you preach to the people. David Hume's Scottish land of the 1750s, I'm sorry to say, just seems as untouched by Christianity as Cicero's benighted Latium in the first century. Remember, BC means before Christ, for those who remember. <laughs> in the mid-18th century of our common era, which is the now official word, Hume does not seem to consider any other way to enunciate anything than by what, he called inform what could be called information transfer. That there might be another way, actually many other ways, and that there exists one aiming at transforming a person you talk to, or more precisely, that there are ways of talking that generate or produce person, he gives no indication of even contemplating as a possibility. For him, it seems there is just one regime of truth that he may use exactly in the same fashion to ask his butler if he could carry an umbrella to visit his friend Adam Smith, if his mistress loves him for good, if Cromwell was born the 25th of April 1599, or if God is a spider, an architect, or a giant vegetable. One size fits all, and yet rational discourse is not to treat everything in the same dispassionate tone, but to learn how to detect the different tone adjusted to the different situation so as to be able to sing all of them in the right tune. That's my definition of rationality. This is, I think, why Pamphilus reacted so fiercely. You, Philo the skeptic, but you also, Cleantes, and even you, Pius Demea, never addressed me in a way that could count for me as a question of salvation, of life, and death. You spoke in a way that offered no remedy to the distance at which we assemble and are alive. All the elements among which you offer to choose, God and vegetable, are equally foreign to me. None of them produce the proximity that would have made us neighbor, proximus, assembled in the same church for the same ritual and the same destiny. You have transformed the only speech able to generate proximity into a vain quest for accessing faraway region, a quest which will never be as good as those of the natural sciences. You behave as if religion was something of the past, a savage cult, just good for some strange folk in Africa, 
or maybe way back in the highland, and that everything left in Christianity was Sunder Coyer's beautiful landscape, pretty gardens, and nice morality. It is hard not to pity poor Pamphilus left growling in the dark, imprisoned with water and black bread. How could he have imagined at such a young age that the grown-up in whom he has so much confidence could teach him a view of a supernatural that bore no relation whatsoever with religion and a view of a natural that bore even less relation with the real practice of science? Had he had the chance to glance at our little table, he might have been prepared for this disappointing result. He could have noticed that the vague terms of natural religion mixes about 16 different features that had to be distributed among four different entities, summoning four different people who had no real reason to assemble in the same place. Quite an amalgam. It's really sad that the best minds of Edinburgh were able to leave this poor chap hopelessly saddled with the confusion created by a search for natural religion when he was trying to live up to the several ways in which the worlds can be gathered together. How sad it is to see that the real enough difference between the far away, accessed so beautifully by the sciences and the near at hand, accessed so efficaciously by religious too, have been so hopelessly reversed that Demia, when he needs to talk with a tremulous voice about the unforgivable mysteries of his religion, has to point his finger to the sky, whereas when talking calmly with Philo about scientific knowledge, he targets the earth below. And yet, there is no irrational mystery in Pamphilus' religion. Or rather, religion is transmogrified into an unfavorable mystery precisely because of its reversal in the direction of a gaze and because the various ways they are to reach the different target are omitted. Demia, when talking about spirituality, should have directed Pamphilus' attention toward the close at hand and when talking about science, toward the far away. But to succeed in both directions, he should have sidestepped twice the sharp limits imposed by common sense. This famous common sense that remained just as insensitive about how to generate neighbors as it is on how to access the far away. Persuaded as it is that there is nothing in the world but middle-sized dry goods, that can be talked about, as we say, matter of factually. You understand why Pamphilus' father should have been warned. The net result of his famous dialogue is that common sense triumphs against religion, but also against science. It's a poor education that misses the far away just as much as the close at hand. It's a poor education that renders Copernicus Galileo's and Newton's long night of labor as impossible to register as the detour that the good Samaritan has to take to transform into his neighbor, his prochain, Proximus, the poor bloke left half dead on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
If that's the result of Scottish Enlightenment, then it must have cast a deep shadow over lots of other sources of light and mark not the beginning, but rather, I'm sorry to say, the end of an era. The scandal, of course, resides in the way Demea too quickly accepted that the ordinary tools of reason could no longer follow the process of its religion in a continuous step-by-step -step fashion. Probably out of desperation, he resigned himself to jump headlong into the comforting murkiness of profound mystery. If such an abandon of rationality could not convince Philo, he did not educate poor Pamphilus either. He was left with the only solution, to take a great leap of faith, just at the point when renewed attention and care in following the thread of experience would have been most necessary. If there is something clearly shocking in Demea's abandoning of rationality, there is something more forgivable in Cleontes' attempt. To be sure, he does nothing to help his pupil to register the attribute of religion too. He too believes that it's necessary when talking about religion to look high up instead of down here. But at least he doesn't wish to abandon the procedure of reason and does not think that a tremulous voice will help him answer his God's call in the right key. This is why he's beaten by Philo every time. He repeatedly tries to use the vehicle of information transfer in order to access a type of truth for which it's Ill, as ill-adapted as an overstretched limousine snaking its way through the narrow country lanes as in the first opening scenes of Lars von Trier Melancholia. I'll come back to Melancholia several times. Every time Cleontus realizes that this expensive vehicle is in the lurch, he admits quite frankly that it is not the trip he wished to take in the first place. But the problem is that just like Justine in von Trier's heroine, he has no other place to go and no other ride to take it. Anyway, what makes Cleontes' attempt so vacuous and yet so important for our under undertaking tonight is that Cleont, as far as we understand it, refused to believe that religion number two could have no consequence whatsoever on nature. To put it bluntly, he does not want Philo to own the whole real world for himself. This, too, would be a flight from reason, just as dramatic as Demetia. Demetia sorry. You may criticize natural religion, prove that it's a pleonasm, but you, want nonetheless to let, you don't want, nonetheless, to let nature swallow creation entirely, especially if it's nature number one that does the swallowing. So Cleontes, in my view, tries to counterbalance the dangerous drift that would restrict religion inside the heart, limits its vocation to the salvation of only humans, and even more narrowly shrink the salvation of those humans solely to the souls of a few members of a church. Cleontes knows very well that incarnation is not simply about the self. And yet, Cleontes' enterprise could be taken much more seriously. I think his aim is to hybridize through another grafting of the people assembled by nature with the people assembled by religion number two. At the very least, through this misdirected obstinacy, he indicates 
that the task of political theology is not yet completed. Maybe he believed that he is another Saint Paul put in charge of writing another version of the epistle to the Hebrews. Except this time, it's not to the people of a, it's to the people of a naturalist and not to those of a circumcision that he is trying so clumsily to address his message of salvation. If I had to poke a few holes in Hume's dialogue, with many apologies to the memory of your great Scottish philosopher, it's because it allowed me to fill in the fourth column of my table and to underline some of the discordances among those different people and entity. Quite logically, I propose to put nature one and religion one close together. This is why we are great there since they share the same epistemological definition, and they differ only in the meaning of the word animation, as we said yesterday, and in the size and boundaries of the people assembled. Together, they make what is usually called natural religion. Such was the canonical departure point for many meditations on how to reconcile materialism and spiritualism, science and religion, object and value, is and ought. No wonder that those meditations could never extract themselves from amalgam and pleonism, since both people are summoned by an entity that could reasonably be called Deus Sive Natura. At least they both morph into one another so easily that it's impossible to call one of them secular and the other one non-secular. The history of political epistemology should account for this translatio imperi through which the features of nature have been decanted into those of God before being poured over, once again, from God to nature in a long chain of successive transfer from the Greek to Christianity through the Church Fathers all the way to the various scientific revolutions. Since the time might have come to put new wine skin, sorry, new wine into new wine skin, I propose a risky move. Sorry, too many tables. There would be no table in the other lectures, <laughs> I assure you. Putting, putting side by side the two lists of features that had apparently nothing in common, we are now talking about the two one on the right, which had nothing in, nothing in common since one is about information transfer, chains of reference is my name, while the other, as we saw above, is concerned with transformation, transport of transformation, if I could say that. The two people assembled by those entities are entirely distinct. One is trying through instrument and delicate changes of reference to access the invisible and the far away. The other, through predication and conversion, to multiply those who are near and close. So far, the only joint features are first to be equally ignored by common sense, and second to be each in its own way the hidden agenda of one plank of a program making up natural religion. And yet, they might share something much more essential, provided we consider the overall effect of such realignment and begin to compare our two columns two by two. What is interesting is that as soon as we render problematic this premature unification of a cosmos, which are the two one in gray here, 
By contrast, a new communality appears in the two other columns on the right. Both are fully secular, provided you agree to designate by this somewhat capricious adjective ways of life that do not rely on the pre-existence of an overarching god slash major. Since in order to reach their different goal, they cannot rely on such a deity to do the job for them, both have to pay the full price of their extension, a common feature that I want to underline now. When taken as practices, scientific discipline launched in the hard step-by-step -step process of reaching the invisible and the far away, have to encounter one after the other, each of a new and surprising agent composing a world that is not yet unified, not yet undisputed, not yet outside. That's why the scientific way of life is simultaneously so slow, so diverse, so exciting, and why also it's so frustrating and often so controversial. To call something scientific is not a guarantee of a certain success, but the warning that a risk has been taken that may end up in failure. My benignant little field of science studies takes great pride in following those paths, those networks, in even more and more detail. How scientific procedures have to pay the full cost of each segment along their extension, from a new surprising agent brought to the laboratory and then once submitted to harsh laboratory trials, how it managed to maintain its complex system of proof outside of its narrow confine so as to survive in the real world outside. Naturally, the people devoting their life to this mode of extension may wish that their result be already universal, incontrovertible, and fully exterior to their man and machine-made narrow procedures. But nonetheless, they will be reminded the next day to pay once again in hard currency the total bill for the extension one step further. Paper after paper, citation after citation, colleague after colleague, place after place, process after process, proof after proof. All the scientists here know that. If we turn to those people assembled by entities who seem to appear and to disappear, religion too, depending on how they are talked about, we find strangely, that they too must follow a hard and costly, slow, step-by-step -step process of extending their agency. <laughs> These people cannot rely on claims about the entity's premature and unsubstantiated universal completion. Naturally, you might claim that you believe in God, but the next day you will be reminded that if you lack charity, you won't be better than echoing bronze of a clash of symbols. And how would you extend charity, I beg you, without taking each detour at each moment for each word, each person to reach the near and the close at hand and start every time anew? Here again, it's totally impossible to suppose that a premature unification of what is at stake could protect you from paying the full cost of the extension of a good message, faithful after faithful, place after place, translation after translation. And if you believe you have already done it, yesterday, for good, forever, 
then you have also forever lost along the way the very content of the message you were supposed to transfer. For a word that was supposed to transform those to whom you were preaching into person loved and saved, you have substituted a word that is simply providing meaningless information. Needless to say that what follows now pertains to philosophical fiction. But I'd like to sketch for the remainder of this lecture what could have been settled differently and what alternative it would have made, it could have offered to natural religion. An epistemological version of scientific discipline is offered when the results of science are divorced from its production, so much so that any allusion to its human-made basis is taken as a debunking of its objectivity. As I've underlined yesterday, if philosophers and scientists are so touchy about relativism, it's because they are terribly anxious about not being able to reconcile the two sets of features that I've labeled nature one and two. They have never been publicly able to adjust their bifocal vision to that their eyes could accommodate the two field vision at once. I'll come back to that on Monday. The pseudo-controversy of their climate science is a good case in point. It's my contention that because they are so viciously attacked, my colleagues who claim to defend the mantle of science against their science, climatologists offer a unique occasion to explore this post-epistemological version of a trade. Every time climatoskeptics mention the word lobby to describe their enemies, they point to the existence of a real enough community of scientists. By highlighting this community equipped with instruments, working with models, exchanging emails, going to conferences, standardizing data sets, applying for money, organizing consensus meetings, publishing policy summaries, they believe that this humble and material activity should be taken as proof that climate science is not a really good science. They seem to believe that climate science could be better known independently of any scientific network, or that any one of them, by the mere power of reason, should second guess what tens of thousands of colleagues have passionately assembled. Or that there exists somewhere a true knowledge of a climate, ready to appear mysteriously, without any mediation at all, to reveal the final truth about itself through clear evidence. A sort of burning Bosch revelation, except this time, in plain speech. What is so distressing in such a restricted view of scientific practice is that bona fide climatologists, too, seems to believe that foregrounding their humble activity will weaken their claims to certainty, that they have something to hide, or at least that they should background as much as possible the complex institution, the vast machine, as Polydworlds call it, that they have built to reach certainty as if, indeed, they too could not adjust to the bifocal view of their own practice. Such is the primal, primal scene science studies had to witness over and over again. How come there is no legitimate way to accept the humble conception of scientific truth? Why is it so difficult, as the anthropological rendering of scientific practice invites us to do, to accept that scientists do indeed 
compose a people, and a very specific one. And yet such an acceptation would offer a much more realistic picture, since scientists are constantly trying to define the limits of the assembly and the exact standing of those they represent. Why don't they confess that they are indeed a people engaged in the complex process of people and world building? There is nothing wrong in drawing in one single movement a type of agency, a type of people, and a type of entity. Theos, demos, and nomos. That's what science, anthropologically and not epistemologically defined, is all about. When climato-skeptics denigrate the science of climatologists, they too assemble another flock. Define other entry tests, police differently borderlines with new documentation, endow matter with other quality, expect from politics other goal, and probably live under another god. So do climatologists. Who are you representing? And what are you fighting for? No reason to hide yourself behind the idea of a view from nowhere held by people who belong to no people. One is tempted to tell them, stand on your own ground for God's sake instead of believing that you have to try to make your science answerable to the impossible standard of epistemology require you to disembody yourself toward a place of no place. Of course, climatologists would be able to stake their ground more firmly if they could clarify the strand status of the agent that they are claiming to represent. They are not helped, it's true, by this odd idea that they hacked in the name of mute agents that speak nonetheless about themselves in strange tongues. Here again, climatoskeptic would like them to decide. Are you going doing the speaking about the climate, or is it the climate that speaks loud and clear by itself? But it would be ludicrous to reply to such a demand. One could instead address them more vehemently. Why don't you proudly accept the extraordinary rich anthropological repertoire that scientists have managed to build for the century in order to make things speak so that they do speak through the scientists? If people tell you that you indulge in politics and that you are taking yourself to be the representative and the voices of many hidden and suppressed voices, say yes, for God's sake. Yes, of course, how would anyone know the first thing about the climate without you, scientist, and your paraphernalia? If politics consists in representing the voice of the downtrodden and of the unknown, well, then we would all be in a much better situation than if instead of pretending that the others are doing politics and you just do science, you confess that you do try to assemble a political body and to live in a coherent cosmos summoned by a different entity, nomos, theos, and deos. It's very true that you don't speak in the name of a constituency that would overlap with national or with social boundaries, and that the source of your authority is based on a very odd system of election and proof. But that's precisely what makes your political power of representation of so many new agents in the coming conflict about the shape of the world so very precious. Don't sell this political for a dish of bread and lentil stew. Such a view does not cast any doubt on the quality, objectivity, and solidity of scientific discipline. 
It's just that the network of practice are finally foregrounded. The point was harder to make, I agree, at an earlier time, when the paraphernalia, the groups, the cost, the institution, and the controversy around matters of fact were not so visible. But that's no longer the case, now that every matter of concern is delivered with its instrument, its assembly of disputing experts is public, much like any GPS data point come with its retinue of satellite. The effect of such a new vision of scientific practice is that for appealing against the result of science, there is no outside Supreme Court, especially not the Supreme Court of Nature. In other words, knowledge has stopped floating mysteriously around with the strange ability to sometimes disappear and sometimes fuse with the thing known so completely that it couldn't be distinguished from it. As if the thing in itself was made in and of knowability, as if it could be known even without the equipment and networks of real-life scientists waiting quietly for them to appear and say exactly the same thing they eventually said. This is what I've called the post-epistemological and thus the post-natural version of the natural sciences. I'm so interested in that because of a fifth column here, and it's the last one, I promise. I, it took a long time for anthropologists to realize that nature was far from a universal category but most people have never lived in harmony with nature, and which is even more enigmatic that so-called naturalists have never lived in nature either, since they never managed to reconcile the apolitical, irreligious, deanimated version of nature one with the practice of science that is nature two. This is why I want to reintroduce here in the end the multiverse, that is the natural, as if the natural sciences were relocated inside it. As soon as we do this, it's possible to let the other collective stop being cultures and give them full access to reality by letting them compose their cosmos, by using other keys, other modes of extension than the one allowed by knowledge production. Such re reinterpretation is especially relevant today because if nature is not universal, climate might be a new way to understand anthropology. The reintroduction of climate and atmosphere as the new common cosmopolitical concern give a new urgency to this communality between collectives. The argument might sound strange, but remember that if it's understandable, that scientists want to do away with spirit, souls, divinity, and other occult forces, this is not because they have managed to substitute for them a purely material world. It's because those agencies answer to other gods, define other entry for the pluriverse, and assemble other type of people with whom scientists might not wish to enter into contact. This is what I've called a secular view of science and nature. It's not nature against belief, as would be required by the relativist language game, but one political theology against other political theology. 
Were I audacious enough to suggest another end of a celebrated dialogue the natural religion, I would have assembled the protagonist in Hume's smoking room, I visited his house, and asked his butler to bring cigars and port. I assume he had a butler. To sum up our discussion in the way it's often staged at the end of Woodenit by the clever detective, always so much smarter than the police inspector. In my case, unfortunately, it will be much less conclusive since we have only hapless Pamphilus to play the role of Mrs. Marple. <laughs> Turning to Demea, he could have said, why have you so completely abandoned your creed that you let religion become a set of archaic rituals, moralistic tenet, and obscure mysteries? You have not only abandoned any access to the world for reason, you have left the word to science and left the science to epistemology, relying on common sense, indignation, or tradition whenever you felt cornered. To Cléant, he could have said, my respectable preceptor, I understand that you want our religion to have some bearing on an outside reality and some hope of sitting proudly among the sciences without relying on Demea's crass ignorance to prove religion full force. But why did you imagine that you would have to compete with Philo in some trip toward the invisible and the faraway, given that you are neither competent nor interested in paving your way there with instrument and inscription? Either you do establish those reference chain and you become a respected scientist, or you don't. And you will succeed in doing nothing more than drawing ridicule to our religion, not having advanced one iota by one single act of conversion down here. Is there really no other way to access the world than either to capitulate to an inflated notion of science or to add a postish clockmaker on top of it all? And you, Philo, ridiculing Demea is fine and fun. But why give Cleantus such a hard time? Is he not after something that you should be interested in achieving too? As you yourself have so often shown, we should be extremely suspicious of establishing any spurious continuity throughout the concatenation of causes and consequences. You too should be interested in a solution that reestablishes some distinction between knowledge and the world. Not as your alias David Hume proposed, by introducing the human mind and its associative power into the picture, but by considering that the multiverse itself might be discontinuous. This conclusion will not have weakened objective science, but ensured that it's cared for and equipped and that no one else can feed on its limit, especially not religious soul. This would have left, led skepticism in a totally different direction. And it would have saved generation a lot of time spent in useless discussion by permitting a certain scholar from Königsberg to keep snoring all the way through his dogmatic slumber. I think that Pamphilus, had he read more anthropology, would have concluded by stating again his surprise that his mentors would be so uninterested 
in putting to good use all the trails that other collective have drawn through the multiverse to cope with their varied climate. Like him, I suspect that there is not much hope of drawing the changing face of Gaia as long as we haven't brought the sciences back to Earth and as long as we have not refreshed the meaning of what could be called incarnation. I share Pamphilus' surprise that for two of the most important enterprises of our culture, namely science and religion, being from this earth appears to be so strangely impossible. Well, thank you, Professor Latour, for that scintillating rewriting of David Hume. <clears throat> I don't think that exercise has ever been attempted by a Gifford lecturer before. <laughs> you, uh, you thank me for uh, my unique confession of a physicist liking your books, but you also made a unique confession. I don't think I've ever heard any French scholar saying in public they wished their mother tongue was English. <laughs> I, think, I think you might have trouble getting back into France. This lecture is being televised, you know, around the world. They may require you to give back your passport. But anyway, um, let's do exactly the same as previous nights. Those who would have to leave can, uh, uh, can, can leave now. We have two or three minute break. And then afterwards, uh, Professor Latour has kindly uh, agreed to take questions again for 10, 15 minutes. So before we move on to the questions, I'm asked to um, remind you that uh, the Right Reverend Brian Smith, the former Bishop of Edinburgh, will be facilitating a discussion of these Gifford lectures next, uh, Thursday next week after the last lecture here in St. Celia's Hall at half past seven. And you're all welcome to come, there's no need to book. So like last night, it will be a roving microphone. Um, let's have a first question. What, in your view, are the main points put forward during the lecture? Sorry? What, in your view, are the main points put forward during the lecture? I, I would say that it's you, 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 you to answer that, no? Uh, you want me to show the table again, probably? <laughs> The point is really reorganizing a little bit uh, argument around theos, nomos, and demos. Natural religion is pretty uh, unified version, which suppose that a lot of the things are already uh, unified, except design versus de-animated. And I'm interested, of course, in those two ones, because they are the secular ones, and in this one, because this is the, where the anthropology uh, of my colleagues is actually uh, interested in. So it's a summary of a large part of the anthropological literature. And I'm, I don't like table especially, but it has a simplifying element in it, <laughs> I would say. And it opens a possibility that if we try to get here, which is how 
this science and this religion starts without unification being already there, do they have something to say about this? So this is where we will go on Thursday. And then if we have a... We cannot get into this question of Gaia without, as long as we have not, we fought entirely the notion of nature. So that's what I'm trying to do. But the two first lectures are a bit hard. The other ones are a piece of cake. <laughs> Except the last one, which is pretty hard. Thank you. I could very well, well follow your description of science, but I was asking where does come from your definition of religion? Why don't you call it humanism? Of humanitarian way of acting to people? Because no God is needed to do what you call religion. But, but I didn't... Conversion and transformation and so on, because that is not part of humanism. So there is a kind of religious practice, I would say coming from Christianity, and now seen as uh, the main characteristic of the post-natural religion, so to say. I'm not completely sure that I would answer, but the problem, there is a slight problem with the definition of humans at the time of the Anthropocene. And that's what I tried to get into on Tuesday, which is, uh, so in natural theology, you don't, never talk about humans because, I mean, humans need, need a, a function which they call theos, but it doesn't need to be a god. The proof is that most people in naturalism believe it, they, they are completely without god. They just have nature, but it plays, as I showed yesterday, exactly the same function. So we, the, it's not the name which interests me, it's the attributes, right? And um, the, the second problem is that the notion of human will have to be disputed um, Tuesday, <laughs> I'm afraid, um, when we will have to entertain the very, very delicate question of who is the anthropos of the Anthropocene? Is it still a human in the traditional sense of the word? Probably not. I mean, this is a tricky question, but so this is why I, N never talk about human in that context. Yeah. So the three functions, which are the one, the sort of, ca sort of canonic version question in, in um, political theology is uh, the entity. You can call it God, but it doesn't help. The way the, uh, the agencies are distributed, nomos. And of course, the delineation of a demos, of a people. That's the only free concept I use here. So uh, humanism, of course, could be introduced here, but I think that's something, something which is not so topical for our discussion. But I will, I will deal with this on Tuesday, which is another hard lecture, by the way, on Tuesday. Uh, thanks for the talk. I just had a question on the fourth column, your religion two column, uh, which is first how you chose those four attributes and why you didn't choose others. And uh, secondly, what, what difference would it make for you if you chose another religion than Christianity? Those, those four at attributes are admittedly quite central to Christianity, but perhaps not to other religions. And if you talk about Gaia, 
as a global uh, entity then? What does that mean? That's a very important question. I limited the religion um, question here to Christianity because that's where the natural religion argument has been developed mostly in the Gifford series. But of course, it's perfectly well taken. There would be lots of other uh, tradition. Yet, in, in, I'm interested, I will deal a bit on that in the last uh, lectures. Natural theology, uh, sorry, political theology uh, should be able to address a very, very different uh, type of connection with this other tradition around ecology. But this is a completely open field. And uh, it takes a long time for the, you understand that my main point here, <laughs> to answer the first, is to bring the science back into uh, anthropological <laughs> vision. So when we will try to reopen the discussion with lots of other religious tradition, it will be very important that we know what we mean by science and what sort of people is associated with it. If not, it makes the whole nature is back, and with it, the elimination of politics. So this is why it's, I, I keep the discussion here around Christianity uh, only. But you're perfectly right. I mean, this is a, uh, now why do I show the four? <laughs> uh, it's a highly simplified version of uh, very traditional theology. I mean, the notion that uh, it's a very different way of speaking. It's about incarnation. It's about saving. It has nothing to do with uh, far away. It's about the world, uh, logos. I mean, all of that is pretty traditional. I'm, I'm just publishing a book at Polity on, on that question, so I, it's a sort of summary of that argument. I'm sure lots of theologians here could disagree with that. And theologians are known to disagree always quite a lot. Uh, so this is a sort of simplified version for uh, trying again to make the, 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 the parallel possible, just to render possible to think of a sciences in their multiplicity as people. Because of what I said, which is this very extraordinary situation of climatologies, basically. I'm fascinated by this question. What sort of, what sort of politics are they in? And it's an essential question to get to the ecological dispute later on. So I'm sorry, I keep answering by saying to, uh, telling you to attend the other lectures. Uh, it's the difficulty I had. I mean, this is, I, I was told yesterday that some, some of the Gifford lectures were actually before 12 and not six. So it must have been even more difficult for the speakers. Thank you very much for that uh, lecture, Professor, also for yesterday, which I enjoyed very much. Um, you mentioned that there was a potentially a conflict. You know, scientists may not want to associate, uh, might reject a, 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 a more ecclesiastical worldview because they may not want to associate with those people and describe these uh, one characteristic of each of these columns as the people uh, that they assemble. Um, of course, many scientists, uh, although a naturalistic position doesn't require a God, many scientists are religious, and many religious people, broadly speaking, accept a modernist. Uh, view of nature. So for those people, do they have to just have a double think? You know, do they have to just have a philo and a, a demo in their head fighting out all the time? Or for those people, is there any hope of, of, of synthesising those into one world view which, which, is, which is stable rather than a constant conflict in, in their own heads? No, I think that's an interesting question. I think they are anxious 
And this anxiety, which has always been there for the science since the beginning of the scientific revolution, is even stronger now because all, all these sciences which are... See, the surprising situation, which is the one which is associated with Anthropocene, is that it's simultaneously a victory of science, because none of this phenomenon is known for the sciences, and yet it resembles in no way the ideal of a scientific worldview as it was imagined in the time of, of the 17th century, because the status and authority of the sciences is so different. And it's not actually not the, 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 the physics which is so prominent. It's a lot of other sciences which are basically natural history and model building. I mean, oh, this is very surprising for those who are interested in a scientific worldview. And as I will see, Gaia is not nature anyway. That's what we will learn, hopefully, on Thursday. So they are not divided, they are uh, anxious. And it's very interesting when you talk to climatologists, they, they, they know that their defense of themselves in epistemological way is just a way of, of, of them being fired by the climatoskeptics. But yet, they seem to have no other alternative and say, we just do science and the others are doing politics. And of course, the others say, you are doing politics. <laughs> and the poor guys are just crucified. I mean, crucified is not the word. I mean, they are just shot. <laughs> so it, it is, that's what I'm trying to offer. I mean, okay, what would it be changed if you were people engaged, which is what we will see on Monday, another difficult lectures, by the way, on <laughs> what it is to accept the fact that there is a battle about all these questions. But it is a conflict. Nature is no longer there to unify us. Ecology is not the realm of agreement and nice feelings and unanimity. It's actually the most conflicting, another set of conflicting matters of concern. So my solution, which is a bit strange, is to reconcile the scientists with their own people, so to speak, and to say, wait, wait, I mean, you cannot simultaneously be everybody disembodied from everywhere and simultaneously somewhere inside a land. You have, you have to accept the fact that we are on, on an earth which you defend in a certain way against other people who are accusing you you for political reason, but politic in the real sense of the word, and uh, why don't you accept this situation? It doesn't mean it simplifies the situation, but at least they won't be divided. They will be fighting on the <laughs> war path. Scientists are on the war path, which is a novelty for them, because they were always trying to say, well, we just do science and then the rest is politics. But now we deal with the, the climate in which we are all located. So it's a complete change in the way science and politics is related. And that's what I try to register in those strange arguments. Uh, thank you, Professor Leto, for two fascinating lectures. My question would be... Uh, say that again? There are four others more. Yes, <laughs> I equally look forward to them. Uh, you know, my question would be, are you aware of any philosophical tradition which has had a more secular view of nature? You know, uh, say the Eastern philosophy per se, you know, the Vedic traditions or the Oriental traditions, you know, which, uh, in, in, in which perhaps this conflict is not so accentuated as it might be in the Christian context. 
No, it would be really interesting. But the, in, in our tradition and inside the Gifford series, of course, Whitehead would be one of them. Strangely enough, I mean, because the God, Whitehead God is a very strange God. It's a very secular God in the sense here. The, the secular, which is a difficult word here, means that there is no already accepted referee when there is a conflict. That's the point I will make on Monday. And that's where, where the thing begins to be interesting. So I'm sure there are lots of other traditions in which the uni premature unification and depolitization of science has not been made. And, and I would be interested to learn more, obviously, about that. Um, does magic fit in here anywhere? Well, that's the part I skipped in the lecture. Um, <laughs> I mean, criticizing Hume was enough. I didn't want to get into, uh, I've just visited uh, at the museum, Scotland Museum, the witch, the little part on witch, uh, witchcraft, where I understand that one of your king was a great, James actually was a great uh, witch hunter. Uh, so I, I was a bit worried. No, no. Uh, When I mention this fifth column there, it's about other ways of entering into connection inside the pluriverse with entities. It's another definition of the nomos, of course. Uh, but I try not to make the parallel too fast with uh, science, because obviously you get into a lot of uh, difficulties, and to try to associate very clearly the practice of knowledge making with the reference path which I described. So uh, when we will deal, hopefully the last lectures, with the rituals or cult interested in the earth, we might want to get into this. But uh, I would say as late, as late as possible. Uh, because it's very, very difficult to pay respect to the ability of a science to be bringing back the earth and be of this earth and simultaneously to redeem, uh, redeem is not exactly the word, but uh, to sort out, check, I don't know what would be the word, enter into a parley with this other tradition, which also say that we are about the earth, that we are about, um, so there's neo-pagan and new age uh, cult. So I wanted to get into that for the last lectures, but in fact, I, I think I'm going to wait uh, because it's extraordinarily difficult to get the sciences in, in a respectable way, which doesn't shock the scientist, which is the immense difficulty of the diplomatic uh, work I'm doing, of course, not to shock and to hear the voice. Thank you. Um, I wanted to pick up on what you were saying about the relation between words that are supposed to transform and words that only provide useless information and the fear of foregrounding the humble activities of science. And I, my question is, what, if any, further 
guiding principles are there, in your opinion, for those who wish to practice social science in a way where they stand their own ground, like you say, and confess their assemblage of a political body, and who want to make things and make knowledge that undeniably comes from and defends the earth? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> so it's about the social science, sort of. I think I, I cannot answer that one right directly. What counted in this? See, natural religion is made of this amalgam. Which I think it's clarifying to try to distinguish reference making, which is what science studies have been so good at showing. How is this pavement of reference made and the price to pay to obtain knowledge? And that includes, of course, the social sciences. And then there is a completely different way, but there are lots of others. There are not only two, there are lots of others. The one I characterize here inside a very, very limited tradition, Christian tradition of religion, is, I mean, there are lots of theologians here, I think they would agree with me, something which is associated with the Logos that con convert and transform those who are addressed to, that is, carry not information, but transformation of those who are addressed. That's one, another one. But there are lots of others. And of course, politics is completely different yet. And there are lots of others. So this is what I'm trying to do in a completely different work from here, which is an inquiry into modes of existence, where I try to capture this, different, this multiplicity of ways of addressing. And that's what I alluded to when I said rationality is about listening in their right keys for all these ways of organizing or producing truth conditions, so to speak. So, but here I was just interested in the two, which is one way, because it's so, first because it's a topic of a Gifford, but also because it's a sort of massive organization of our way of life that there is one way to access the far way and another way to produce the, the close at hand. And that has nothing to do with common sense, because common sense ignores both. It's as ignorant of science as it is as prochain. And that's, where, that's why I push the, the thing. Now, what are the consequences of social sciences that would require long <laughs> discussion? And I'm not uh, up to the task right now, I'm afraid. Thank you again. Uh, the short version of the question is, is Pamphilus a Catholic? Um, and the slightly, slightly longer one is that one of the extraordinary aspects of the wonderful outrage that you attributed to Pamphilus is the inability of Cleanthes and Philo to take transformation seriously, a sort of kind of fixed universe where things are, and, and fixed people. But there is a strong strand in certain kinds of Protestant theology with an emphasis on predestination, where transformation doesn't really play that much of a role. If things are preordained, then why would you seek transformation? There's, a, there's more of a kind of sudden baptismal transformation 
if that, and then, and then all is done. So in, in some ways I was reminded of uh, Voltaire's complaint about the English, even though he was a Catholic, which, you know, a hundred religions, only one source, melted butter. Um, there was a certain kind of Catholic voice in that. But I wondered... I miss the butter thing. <laughs> you think we don't even have melted butter? Ah, oh, well. Um, but is there some analogy also, though, more seriously, that there's a certain kind of Protestant-Catholic divide amongst the climate scientists and those who deny climate change, in that those who are pursuing serious research into climate change have a more Catholic vision of transformation and the need to act and the need for things to change, whereas those who deny or are more complacent they, they assume things will be all right. They too are awaiting some sudden baptismal transformation and no further action is required. Wow, that's a long thing. Um, on the second part is quite fascinating. I know nothing about the religious background of climate skeptic versus climate deniers. Oh, uh, that would be very interesting. I, I have to look. I, thank you for the tip. Um, of course, there is a lot of um, fundamentalists who are clim climatoskeptic, but they are not the scientists. They are the ones who are, for a lot of other reasons, so that's not what you meant. You meant the ones who are really practicing scientists. The problem is that there are very few practicing scientists who are actually technically climatoskeptic. The climatoskeptic are quite different, and there's no real controversy. So, but this is an interesting thing. Pamphilus is, is, is not a Catholic. He is a mixture of probably of evangelical, very strange mix. He believes that the Holy Spirit has not finished his duty. So now pick. Who, who wants to take Pamphilus in one's own church will have it. I'm not sure the Catholic will have it. <laughs> but it would be nice. I'm a Catholic myself. I would love that. But I don't think Catholic will have it. We'll see, we, we'll see when we mix or try to connect incarnation and being on this earth after having lifted the faux ami of a red herring of paganism. So this is one of the things which is very delicate to do. And we will see what Pamphilus' religion is. So far, he's scandalized by Hume. He scandalized that religion could have disappeared so completely from Edinburgh in spite of the numbers of fight among religious people at the time. And he's probably not... No, I don't think he's a Catholic. <laughs> but what is this religion is really a question. I, I, I think religion is not past. So, uh, he is like St. Paul. He is somewhere in the first century. He is, he is thinking that the people can be produced, generated out of the old folk. He is writing the epistles to the Hebrews in some way. And I think that's what is in question in all this political theology around Gaia. It is a very strange mixture I'm, that your question is very um, interesting. I'm afraid in view 
of the time. I know there are many more questions, but I think we will have to finish there. But so let me, just before I thank uh, Professor Latour again, remind you that if you have all these questions and want to discuss it further, it's nothing better than coming to the um, discussion that uh, Bishop Brian Smith would be organizing at the end of the lecture series. But let me, on your behalf, propose uh, to thank you again, Professor Latour, for a fantastic lecture and for answering all our questions. Thank you again. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.